to the coffee and uh, do not have a way, please report to June Carson and Warren up here, Warren Brewer. Uh, Kathleen Fuller will take the names of those who have a car and can take one, two, or three, or whatever number that you have available. You go to the end of the beach, sand beach, round the curve, look to your left. You'll see a lighthouse, the only other one after you leave Biloxi. Turn left for two blocks and join us for coffee. We're happy you're here and we'd love to see you and chat with you. And there you will have an opportunity to say a few words to this program, to the people of this program. A lovely invitation for which we are all grateful. We are indebted to the Gulf Poet Group for a very delightful program which we are going to have this afternoon. Many people have said that they would so much like to know a little bit more about the Al-Anon groups and about their meetings. Between 4 and 5, and the meeting will stop promptly at 5 this afternoon, the Gulfport family group will conduct a workshop or a model meeting. There will be three brief talks by Gulfport members of that group, and then there will be a question period when those of you who have something you would like to ask may do so. Third announcement. Upon this table, there is some literature. Not a great deal, but this is quality. If you are interested in it, will you come forward also at the conclusion of our morning meeting? Now, are you ready to take one big stretch and then sit? <coughs> All right. We have had so much good today that I can't help thinking of the little boy whose mother let him go each afternoon down to the basement and there bring up the molasses that the family was going to use for supper. The great pleasure the little boy had was in dipping his finger one time into that molasses barrel and then in giving a nice good lick and swallowing that molasses. One day when he went down to the basement, he discovered that that barrel of molasses, which hadn't had too much in it, had tilted over on its side, and there was a trickle of molasses running down the basement floor. The little boy got down on his hands and knees, ready to begin his licking of all of that molasses, but before he did, he prayed most earnestly, Lord, help my tongue to be equal to this new opportunity. <laughs> Now, it isn't tongues today, it's minds and hearts. And so we might say, do let my mind and do let my heart be equal to this new opportunity which we are now going to have. You know there's a statement from the proverb, where there is no vision, the people perish. But someone had a vision, and his wife is going to speak to us. Lois W. Good morning, friends. I'm so glad to be with you at this great convention. 
these large gatherings of AAs and their families serve many useful purposes. Not the least of them is the thrill and inspiration derived from the mass demonstration of the positive power of good and from the assurance that lives can be changed. But the most miserable, through God's grace, can be raised up. These are assurances that great numbers of humanity all over the world are seeking. And we, the families of AAs, are particularly blessed to be able to observe these miracles at first hand in our own homes. It makes most of us want to try to do something to better our own lives, to live by the 12 steps ourselves, and to help others who still are frustrated and alone to do likewise. These large gatherings also mean to me the flowering of the dreams of all the early A members of AAs and their families, including Bill and myself. We hoped and believed that the AA principles would work on a permanent basis, and for the many as well as for the few. This assembly is irrefutable proof that they do thus work. I deeply believe our AA principles coincide with the highest precepts of mankind, with the fundamental laws of the universe, and that that is why they have been so greatly used by God to perform his work. My personal gratitude is unbounded for the miracle in my own life. I thought you might like to hear not only how that miracle came about, but a little concerning Bill's and my early life together, both before and after AA. When we were engaged, I was particularly proud of the fact that Bill never touched a drop of liquor. You see, he'd been brought up in a family where liquor had caused great damage. His father and mother had been separated because of it, and his grandfather also had drunk too much. They both got over it, but nevertheless Bill had been told that he must not take a drop of liquor, and he believed them. I used to think it was so wonderful when he would go with the boys to the saloons to take ginger ale or some other soft drink. We have always liked outdoor life and used to spend much time together in the open. This came in very handily later in his drinking days when I was still able to engineer outdoor weekends that helped him not only physically but kept him away from the bottle. But to get back to the days when we were engaged, I think most of us women actually pick our husbands. I know I am very conscious of the fact that I deliberately went out and picked mine. Bill was quite young, several years younger than me, I have to admit, and still in college, so that we had a long engagement. One winter, his class was suspended a term because of hazing, and he chopped wood in order to get enough money to come to New York to see his fiancée, to buy a new suit, an overcoat, 
and an engagement ring for his girl. One Saturday during his visit, we thought it would be fun to boil a steak over an open fire on Staten Island, which was then the only woods and real country within New York City. We thought we were very good woodsmen, but we were not apparently as smart as we thought. Before we'd even eaten the steak, the wind changed and blew the leaves all into our fire and the fire into the leaves and Staten Island was ablaze. We beat it out as fast as we could, but we soon realized it had gotten beyond us and went to the nearest house and telephoned the fire department. The people in the house were very kind and told us that we had better stay in hiding because we were the third party in a week that had set Staten Island afire and the police department was furious. These kind folks not only hid us from the law, but lent us clothes to go home. You see, Bill's overcoat was burnt to a cinder and his suit was very badly scorched. And I had lost my hat. In those days, you had to have a hat to go home. You couldn't be seen in the street without one. So this lady, lady went down to the cellar and in the old trunk dug out a dilapidated velvet hat with a big brim and a feather sticking up on top. Thus we went home by trolley, by ferry boat, and by subway. I'm sure there was a bus in there somewhere. And on whichever conveyance we went, people got up and changed their seats. After a while, we realized why they kept moving away. Because we smelt so terribly. You all know the awful smell of scorched wool. In the evening, the reception which Mother had planned for her son-in-law to be continued in the day's ludicrous vein. Bill is an unusually tall man. My father was an unusually short man, but a very, very determined gentleman. He knew that Bill didn't have a coat to wear, and it was too late to buy one. He also knew his cutaway, Dad's cutaway, with long tails would be just the thing for Bill, and nothing else would do. The cutaway covered Bill all right in the back, but it was a bit odd at the waistline, and the sleeves were nearly up to his elbows. <laughs> Thus he made his debut into his future wife's family. When we got married, Bill was a young officer in the heavy artillery and stationed at New Bedford, Mass. during the First World War. The society women there liked to invite young officers to the post to cocktail parties. I often killed Kid Bill by saying that he could resist the men when they asked him to have a drink, but he couldn't resist the gals when they offered him cocktails. They were his downfall. From the very first, he got drunk. I remember coming home one day and finding that the boys had brought him home, put him in bed, and placed two huge pails at his head. That isn't a very pretty picture, and it was a shocking one to me. I didn't know just what I was going to do about the matter, but I was very sure I'd be able to give him enough love and real purpose in life so that he wouldn't need the artificial stimulant of alcohol, that I'd be able to fix him. Then he went overseas. and. He, of course, was plenty of drinking in France. When he got back, we didn't know exactly what he was going to do. 
He had engineering training, but he wasn't particularly interested in that. So we decided we would take a long hike across Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont with our tent and provisions in army packs on our backs. Maybe by the time we got home, feeling physically fit, we'd be able to decide what was best for Bill to go into. Well, when we did get back, he just got a job in an insurance company. But he studied law at night. Then later, he became quite interested in the stock market. He had an idea that when you want to buy a thing, you learn as much about it as you can first. He remembered how his grandfather, when he was going to buy a cow, would go and see the cow and feel the cow and see how much milk it gave and how much it would cost to feed it and what the market for milk was and so on. So he thought that same principle ought to be applied in the stock market. And he offered his services to several different groups of people to thus analyze various companies in which they were interested. But no one seemed to think there was much in the idea. So Bill got the notion that he would go and do it himself anyway. We had a motorcycle with a sidecar, or bathtub at that time. And we set out for a year's trip. We packed all our belongings, as well as ourselves, on this motorcycle. And we must have been a funny sight. I loved to drive, but Bill liked better to think. So he used to sit and ponder in the bathtub, with his long legs draped over the bow, while I, a mere peanut, drove. I've made waterproof slip covers for everything, including ourselves. We each wore one of those zipper overalls that cover you completely, the same kind of thing Churchill has taken to wearing lately. So we were right in style. My idea in going away was not the same as Bill's. Of course, I was interested in his work, but I really had a deeper motive. I wanted to get him away from his drinking. I thought a year out in the open just by ourselves would be a wonderful thing. And it did work out pretty well. We didn't have too much trouble because we could always get up and move away. We had really a wonderful year traveling all over the country and living in the open. And finally, Bill did convince his business associates back in New York that it was useful to have reports on the state of the companies where their investments were. He had a particularly good way of analyzing a company from every possible angle. This started him off in the stock market, and he really became quite successful, and would have been very successful, I think, if he hadn't been drinking it all away at the same time. And his drinking got worse and worse and worse as time went on. Since we had no children, my one purpose in life was to help him get over this frightful habit. Finally, our whole life simmered down to one terrific fight against alcohol. At one time, we tried to adopt children, but with no success. We applied to one of the finest adoption societies, but they refused us. They never told us why, but Bill always thought it was because of his drinking. We still spent as many weekends together in the open as we could manage. When Bill wasn't too bad, we'd go off on some kind of a trek or other. I think one of the reasons why Bill lasted so long 
was because he did have a breath of clean air occasionally, and he did do something on weekends to keep up his physical health. But things got so bad, he wasn't able to bring in any money or hold any job. He'd make something in the stock market once in a while, but it would be very rarely. I not only had to go to work, but had to make all decisions and take all responsibility. I remember one episode when I was working in Macy's. You all know Macy's is the biggest store in the world, and the furniture floor where I worked was particularly spacious. It was the afternoon of our anniversary, and I could see Bill way off, a block away, weaving up the aisle with a little bouquet in one hand and a white tissue paper bundle in the other. When he got up to where I was, he presented these. By this time, quite a few people were interested. Bill insisted I open the parcel then and there, which not only contained a wristwatch, but a check for $2,000. I was simply flabbergasted. But the next morning, he was a little more sober and said, uh, well, um, about that $2,000 I gave you, I really need that in my business. So that was the end of the $2,000. <laughs> One time, when still on the motorcycle, we were coming home from investigating some company in Montreal. Just before we, we reached the international bridge between Canada and the United States, where there's a rather slummish area with all kinds of low-brow buildings, Bill thought he'd like to get some cigarettes. As a matter of fact, cigarettes were very much more expensive in Canada than they were in the United States, but he must have some. This was in the early evening, and I waited and I waited and I waited. No Bill. He had been so fine on this trip that he carried the pocketbook. I didn't have any money. It kept getting later and later. I didn't know what to do since we were leaving Montreal and there wasn't any place for him to go to but the motorcycle. And I was afraid he wouldn't be able to find his way back. So I started out to look for him. I first made a little circle around the bike, and I went further and further. Finally, after going into every last bar and saloon in the area, about three o'clock in the morning, I found him and led him wobbling back to the motorcycle. All the time that Bill was drinking, I tried every way I possibly could to help him. I tried to change or moderate his drinking habits. Sometimes I would drink with him. In fact, I got drunk a couple of times just to let him see how awful it was. But that didn't work. I tried never having liquor in the house. Of course, many a time I would pour the liquor I found down the sink and do all the things that the confused, frustrated wife does. But nothing, nothing worked. I think it was in 1932 that Bill really woke up to the fact that he couldn't stop drinking. Till then he had thought, well, I can sober up when I get ready. I've always done what I made up my mind to do. I'm just not quite ready. He would make promises to me, thousands of them, without my asking him. But deep down, he really wasn't quite ready to stop. An episode happened that it revealed his real situation to him. He had finally gotten a good job, 
and because they knew his reputation, his new bosses had made him sign a contract saying that he would not touch a drop of liquor during the duration of this job. It never occurred to him that he would not be able to keep the contract. Signing his name to anything was a very serious thing to him, so he was sure he would do it. One night he was over in Jersey with the engineers on the job there. They were playing cards and passing around the jug. He refused the jug every time it came around, but was getting awfully bored because he'd never been interested in cards and was just sitting watching. Finally, when the jug came around again, he said, By the way, what's in that jug? At their answer, Jersey Lightning, he began to think, Jersey Lightning? I've never had any Jersey Lightning. Why, wouldn't it be awful if I should go to my grave and never have had any Jersey Lightning? <laughs> so that was the end of that. However, this sad experience woke him up to the fact that when he seriously wanted to stop drinking, not only because he loved his wife and wanted to please her, because he wanted to for himself and was putting all his strength into it, he was unable to do it. From then on, he was the most tragic figure you could imagine. Knowing that he could not lick the alcohol problem, he felt completely beaten. He was just as low as any human could be. I think it is one of the saddest sights in this world to see such a fine person lose all hope. And then in 1934, when he had thought, then in 1934, I beg his pardon, a friend whom he had thought an awful drunkard came to see him. The friend was clear-eyed and bright and told of his release from alcohol. During the several weeks after his friend's visit, though Bill continued to drink, his friend's words kept ringing constantly in his ears. He finally went to the hospital so he could think the matter out clearly. And there he had the tremendous spiritual experience that you have all heard about. I was terribly moved by this and was sure that a real miracle had happened. When Bill came out, he wanted to sober up all the drunks in the world. I believe he must have brought at least half of them home to the house. There were four floors to my father's house in Brooklyn, where we lived, and they were all full of drunks, in every state of sobriety and of every condition that you can imagine. Many amusing, interesting, inspiring, also tragic things happened there. One day we were going to have pancakes for breakfast, and I invited the boys to come up. I fed them occasionally, but not all the time. Wes, the boy in the basement, was very slow in arriving, so the others had a head start. Wes had a huge appetite and ate all the pancakes that were left, then put on his hat and coat. When I asked him where he was going, he said, I'm going to Charles' restaurant for pancakes. One boy lay in the vestibule all one rainy night, screaming invectives at me because I would not let him in. 
He called me the most awful names you ever heard. Everybody that passed by stopped and looked, wondering, I suppose, who this awful woman was who wouldn't take the poor man in out of the rain. Another day, when we wouldn't let in West, the fat man with a big appetite, he slid down the coal chute into the cellar. Why he didn't get stuck in it, I'll never know. He did get stuck in the bathtub once. <laughs> One man committed suicide in our house. You see, in those days, we didn't have a Marty man to educate us on alcoholism. We really didn't know too much about alcoholism. We were trying to spread sweetness and light and do the job for the alcoholic just as I, as I had tried to do the job for Bill. We gave them a home, clothing, and money. Anything we had was theirs. I believe we actually killed this man with kindness. All this time I was deeply grateful for the wonderful thing that had happened to Bill. But one day, I realized I wasn't as happy as I ought to be under the circumstances. This is how it came about. We were going to a meeting with a friend that brought Bill the message. We went with him every week to certain religious meetings. Bill said to me, hurry up and get ready so we won't be late for the meeting. I had a shoe in my hand and I threw it just as hard as I could and said, darn your old meetings. I was I so surprised myself with this display of bad temper over nothing and for no reason that I could see that I began to wonder if there might possibly be something wrong with me. Why wasn't I as happy as I ought to be? Why did I lose my temper so easily? Could it be my fault that I was irritated and frustrated when everything ought to be so wonderful? when everything that I had been working for and looking forward to all my married life had happened? Why was it? Thus I started seriously thinking about my own behavior in relation to Bill and the other alcoholics and to the world at large. I had just taken, for my just taken myself for granted before that. It was only by degrees that I really understood a little about myself, and I began to realize that I had been full of self-pity, that I had resented the fact that someone else had done the job in a few minutes that I had tried so long to accomplish, that I had felt that Bill didn't really appreciate all I had done for him through the years. Of course, I had stayed with him because I loved him not from any sense of duty, but nevertheless I had put up with a lot of hard things. Also I missed the importance of responsibility. During his drinking, Bill had really been dependent upon me for everything. Then all of a sudden the sense of responsibility, the feeling of being needed, had been taken away. I didn't know just what my real purpose in life was. I had had one before. It was to sober up Bill. 
Now that that had gone, I was confused and didn't know just where I fitted in the picture. These alcoholics seemed to be always buzzing around together. Bill was going all over the countryside, bringing home drunks. He was too busy to take out time out for weekends with me in the country, and I missed his companionship badly. It took me many years before I really saw that I had been and was smug and resentful and full of self-pity. Smugness, I think, is one of the most vicious sins in this world. And one of the difficult things that we wives of alcoholics have to face is that the world thinks we have been so wonderful. I don't mean to say that we haven't done a darn good job, but that isn't any reason why we should think that we can't do still a better job, why we should sit back on our haunches, or that no further development is necessary. We'd often become very twisted in our thinking after having lived with an alcoholic all these years. We've had to mother, nurse, protect, and direct him. There didn't seem to be anything else to do. But sometimes we continue to act as mother, not wife, after the alcoholic has sobered up. It's very, very hard for us not to hold on to the reins to keep from nagging, forcing, and directing. We've gotten into the habit. But it isn't much help to an alcoholic after he's started trying to sober up in AA. He resents being told and badly needs our love and understanding and cooperation in his AA work. In the summer of 35, Bill went to Akron on business. Because he was tempted to drink, he searched out another alcoholic and thus came in contact with Dr. Bob. And that is when AA really started. Annie Smith invited me out there for my vacation. I loved Annie from the minute I saw her. She not only had a heart as big as all outdoors, but it contained great wisdom. She was able to quickly put her finger on the crux of any matter and both the alcoholic and his wife sought her advice. Bob's tireless work with alcoholics at the hospital brought numbers of them to Akron to be hospitalized. After their treatment, Annie and Bob would take many of them in for a more or less protracted stay at their home. Hosts of groups sprang from this contact, and in these old early groups, both married partners were indefatigable in working with alcoholics and their wives. I wonder if you realize how slowly AA grew in the beginning. By 1939, there were only a hundred members in a handful of groups. But as the numbers swelled, members of the older groups visited as many of the new as possible. Bill and I were freer to do more of this traveling than were Annie and Bob. Wherever we visited, there was always an opportunity for Annie and me to talk to the local wives. We always told these new mates how we had found that we also needed AA 12 steps. Most of us felt a desire, even from the beginning, to get together and discuss our side of the alcohol problem 
and to search for ways for our own development. In 1940, in New York, we met regularly for a while in an attempt to form some sort of a mate's discussion group. But we were still too close to our shattering experiences. We still could not see ourselves or the problem ob objectively. But slowly, spontaneously, over the country, small bands pressed by this same feeling of need drew together. A few later fell apart, but most of them stuck. These pioneer groups of our fellowship saw that the best way to help the alcoholics, as well as themselves, was to straighten out their own thinking. They developed a regular program for personal improvement, studied the problem of alcoholism, and tried to help the new mate as more alcoholics flocked to AA. In 1950 and 51, when Bill visited AA throughout the country in order to organize AA's General Service Conference, he went to several fine, large family group meetings. These so impressed him that when he returned, he urged me to get in touch with all existing family groups to see if they would like to have a clearinghouse or central service office in New York where we could pool our experiences so all might benefit from them. A place where inquiring relatives of alcoholics anywhere in the world could obtain information and help. Where overall public relations could be handled and literature published. This proposal was enthusiastically welcomed. With this encouragement, Anne B., a close friend and neighbor and family group enthusiast, and I started the work immediately at home. Soon, however, we were able to get the use of AA's first clubhouse on 24th Street in New York and moved our activities there. Many other vol volunteers came to help us out. Now our groups have increased at such a rate that it is necessary to employ one of our girls as general secretary three days a week with two paid assistants, besides the 25 or so volunteers. We also employ another of our gals to edit our monthly forum. Our groups are growing by leaps and bounds all over the world at the rate of nearly one a day like the vitamins. Overseas, the family group idea is catching on also. Fourteen different countries have Al-Anon groups now. And Dundin, New Zealand, has recently sponsored four new groups in that area. They ordered 50 Al-Anon books at first and now have a standing order of 10 a month. When we first started registering the groups, in our enthusiasm, we counted everyone that wrote in saying they wanted to start a group. Many of these did succeed, but with a certain number it was just wishful thinking. Lately, we have dropped all names from our official count that are not active groups. So to date, we now have about 800 groups registered. The St. Louis Convention last year not only was a great opportunity for our family groups, but it marked the debut of our own book. We are glad to report that the book, the Al-Anon Family Groups, the book sales have been most gratifying. 
The first printing of 5,000 lasted just a year. And we are now in our second printing. We were scared blue that we'd have the 5,000 for years and years. But it's, it all went in a year. In, in conclusion, I want to tell you how grateful I am for your loyalty and support of headquarters. For all the time, loving effort you have spent in helping others. And for your devotion to the ideal of practicing AA's principles in all your affairs. It seems to me we relatives of alcoholics who far outnumber them have limitless opportunities for service and growth. When we dream about our future, endless vistas open up of the spread of our principles from person to person and area to area like the proverbial ripples when a pebble is dropped in the sea. I sincerely believe that we, like AA, can be a positive force for good in a confused world, if we will but let God use us. I am deeply grateful to a loving God for blessing us so greatly. Thank you. person who is in this meeting today feels simply ablaze with inspiration. The last thing I should like to say is something I hope we will remember. There is not enough darkness in the world to put out the light of one small candle. However dim that light is, let's keep it, brightening any corner where we are. Let us stand and pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.